0: welcome to not your ordinary parts a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness growth and healing you may hear information from professionally licensed therapists life coaches healers doctors etc this information is not therapy or medical advice and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instruction given by a doctor or personal therapist i'm your host jalan johnson my guest today is david Tien, phd David is a global educator, a certified IFS therapy practitioner, a life coach, and a uniquely qualified international specialist in human behavior, human behavior, emotional and social intelligence, philosophical psychology, Asian Asian psychology, masculinity, and relationships. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me on.
1: So. Yeah. I gave a a bit a of an problem.
0: introduction, but just to Yeah, thank you. Just just to allow the guests to get to know you better, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How you got to how and where you are today?
1: Yeah. Uh so I started off my first career as a professor of philosophy. And at the time, I was married, uh in my mid 20s, pretty early on. I was a conservative Christian as well. So I I went to seminary for a little while got the uh, awards in Biblical Greek and theology and all that, and then went into uh, philosophy, specifically Asian philosophy and religion. And then I went on to be become a professor at the National University of Singapore in the philosophy department. And while there, uh, well, actually, just before I finished my PhD, uh, I got divorced. And I also had a kind of uh, change of faith. Uh, You might, if you're a Christian, you would say a loss of faith and left the faith and uh, coming out of divorce. Now wondering what the heck is life? Because at the time, you know, uh, with Christianity, good and evil were defined by what God commanded, this divine command ethics. So now it was just all a free for all. And I thought, man, I'm almost 30 and I didn't have any fun at all. (laughs) So I didn't, you know, I wasn't supposed to drink, wasn't supposed to Go clubbing or go to the bars or anything that I was supposed to just read the Bible and pray, and then find a nice wife and and go to church, and then that went out the window. So I thought I got to make up for lost time at least, and uh, I tried to do that, but I had no clue what I was doing. I was a complete social misfit. I was a nerd. I was a philosophy geek, and was not popular with well uh, with any of the good looking girls or anything like that in the university campus. And I got lucky. I stumbled upon. Uh, this thing called uh, pickup artists back then. And I met one of the uh, world's top pickup artist companies that they were, and he was actually in my Buddhism class. I was teaching Buddhism at the University of Michigan. And that went into a whole seven-year journey of narcissism when I became basically uh, someone who cultivated the dark triad traits, uh, mostly narcissism in me and And that helped to get more casual dating experiences and casual hookups. And that kind of culminated. And then I became a professor, culminated in becoming a pickup artist coach. That morphed into dating coach. Then later into a relationship coach when I got into a relationship. And this is all just trial and error stuff founded on evolutionary psychology, social psychology. And it wasn't until my mid-30s, the woman I was seeing for three or four years, like four years by that time, cheated on me while she was on a girl's vacation out in a different country. And I found out in a devastating way. And then she posted all over her social media uh, with the new guy. And as a uh, ego-driven narcissist, uh, whose main job at that point was as a dating coach, that was very devastating to my ego and my identity. And that's when I was questioning the hedonistic approach to life. Finally, what's the point of all of this? Um, If it... It was just going to require a lot of hard work to crawl back up to that narcissistic pinnacle. And it didn't seem worth it to me. So I tried to take my life by jumping off the 57th story of Marina Bay Sands. And I found out to my chagrin that they make it very hard to jump off that damn tower. (laughs) And uh, I didn't discover that till I was up there trying to work up the courage to do it. And I crawled out to the ledge, which was had to go past two levels of security just to get to that point. And as I was sending my text mess my farewell texts and emails to my loved one, my family, my closest friends, uh, one of my closest friends who was in Singapore at the time, most of them weren't, uh, was alarmed at my farewell text and um, somehow triangulated my location and got me off the ledge. And from there, I was finally humble enough intellectually to look at uh, psychotherapy and clinical psychology, and that's when I realized. Uh, all the things that I had been going through, and I had the sort of framework for understanding it. I was a professor of philosophy, so I really loved to think about the meaning of life, and um, and love, and meaninglessness, and all of that. So that philosophical background helped to tackle those questions. But it was a, at least a year of, of just sort of um, walking through life in a daze, in a kind of dream state, trying to make sense of what the whole thing was about, and what the purpose of us living here is was for, and through this journey, I discovered IFS therapy, and that was the most powerful modality. Uh, but along the way, I'd gotten training in CBT, schema therapy, Gestalt, ACT, I, I, like everything you name it. I just took every single training there was, and uh, IFS was overall the, the the most powerful for me, and that's the main one that I practice now. and I slowly, well, what felt to me like slowly transitioning, but to my audience that followed me, uh, as small as it is, uh, this might have felt quite abrupt was the transformation from giving dating advice to men and then moving into giving psychotherapeutic advice. And that's where I'm at now. And I am blessed to be able to lead um, primarily men so far who've sought me out um, through self-discovery and using whatever tools are at my disposal to help them find love and meaning and connection in life. And, uh, man, that's where I'm at.
0: Wow. That was, uh, man, you, you, you had me captivated. I, I could have listened to you for at least another 20 minutes. Good Lord. Oh, wow. Well, um, that's you. quite a story, man. <laughs> quite a story. And it, it never ceases to amaze me that you know, I think us lay people look at you guys, therapists and, um, you know, clinicians and think you have to have all your stuff together, right? You're helping all these other people. So when you hear stories like this, it's, it really resonates and, and allows for me. And I, I think I can think I can speak for other people too, as well, to really see you as human, as someone that we can relate to and be vulnerable with, because if you have a story and I have a story. we can connect right and through your experiences and your training you you could help us to get to a better place and to to learn the things that you've learned so thank you thank you for your story thank you for doing the work to get where you are oh well
1: uh you're welcome (laughs) i just did it for (laughs) myself really just get get the hell out of hell really
0: (laughs) thank you no no worries no worries so you also have a, a podcast called masculine psychology can you talk a little bit about that Right. Well, I meant
1: the title to be as open ended as I could make it, while still capturing some some of the audience. Right. So we we cover anything that comes under the rubric or the the term psychology, the umbrella. But uh, because of my background in philosophy, we we I also cover a lot of philosophical approaches to these issues, like the meaning of life. And then the masculine is in there because I still have this audience from over ten years ago, over fifteen years ago, that first found me through dating advice and uh, was largely at that time made up of single men trying to get their dating lives together. And now is also a lot of people, a lot of men in relationships, some married couples, Uh, women are increasingly finding my uh, podcast. So it's, it really just uh, morphs to the interests of the audience. So I try to wait until I get the comments back from the previous episode before I record the next one. So that's like live, but, um, I you know, I'll get them the, the morning of, and then I'll record in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, it doesn't always work out that way, but, um, yeah, we cover everything. And one of the things that I wanted to point out, cause I, I had the, I took some time to look through your, uh, podcast, your previous podcast guests, and you've got some great therapists on here and, um, I'm happy. You know, it's, it's really, really encouraging to see your podcast and to see, you know, what you're, you've created here and uh I wasn't sure what, it, what I've been invited to a lot of other podcasts but they're like men focused or dating focused because we share a similar audience or something like that. So I thought maybe I could just highlight some of the uniqueness of the masculine psychology podcast and what we cover and kind of the unique spin or as far as I can tell of my my perspective and what I bring sure. to the work. And one of them is the uh, what has been branded as more of a masculine energy, which is the kind of intellectual approach to things. And I found that a lot of my uh, people who get in touch with me have tried other IFS therapists, because for a long time I was just saying everyone should get therapy. And I specifically recommend IFS therapy. And then they asked me, how do I find an IFS therapist? I say, well, go on the directory and just look one up in your area, you know, email a bunch of them and try them out. And then they write back and they say, uh, the person didn't understand me. We didn't connect, or, uh, something along those lines. And, and then I, I understood, uh, cause I, I ran through that. I, I ran into that problem myself. And, um, I can see why some therapists might have trouble with this particular type of client profile. And I see a lot of guys who are driven by their intellectual parts and they, they lead with them and it's hard for them to even close their eyes and stay with their eyes closed, you know, for more than a minute. And it's, um, it's hard for them to be vulnerable in that way because intellect is their armor. And you can ask these intellectual parts to just trust you and take a step back or relax back. But I find that that doesn't work well with any of these, these men, especially, um, Because they see the intellectual game as kind of a battle. Like it's about debate and winning. And Mm. uh, so I find that first you need to earn their respect. So the intellectual parts need to respect you enough that they can trust you. That you know what you're doing. But in in order to do that, you kind of have to meet them there. So the philosophical background helps a lot there. And I love intellectual parts. I love the back and forth. I love the ideas or the criticisms or... Uh, so I welcome, well, we, all, we say we welcome all parts. Um, and, but when I get really excited when I meet parts that are intellectual. And the Masculine Psychology podcast has this sort of intellectual approach. I, after all, I'm just talking for half an hour, so it kind of has to be, right? It's very cognitive. And I find that in IFS therapy, well, the world of IFS therapy, there's a stigma against CBT or cognitive approaches to therapy. And I totally understand that but sometimes it's helpful as the beginning for step as a kind of introduction for some of those parts that tend to be more cognitive as you can tell, or I don't know if you can tell, I'm telling you now, right now I'm speaking, uh, with some cognitive parts right at the forefront, you know, and, um, this has helped to resonate with some people. The second out of the two that I wanted to bring up was the masculinity bit or the masculinity angle, uh, and understanding like warrior type of energy and uh a kind of oh, there's also a kind of nerding out geeking out kind of energy uh, that are also to be welcomed and uh there's been a lot an understanding that the modern especially western male has been assailed by talk of toxic masculinity for decades and the younger they are, the more of it that they've had, and they haven't understood what non-toxic masculinity. No one's really told them what that is, and there haven't there have been very few guides or models. So part of what I'm doing in this podcast, hopefully, is telling not just telling
0: them about it cognitively, but ho- hopefully modeling it as well. Thanks. Um, okay, so you mentioned IFS therapy and. Different types of parts, right? And and as we were speaking before we started recording, we we mentioned that I've had some some other IFS therapists, and um, they have done a great job of explaining what IFS is. But also, if someone was to jump on the podcast right now, and you know had never heard any of those previous guests, um, they may not understand what you meant by the types of parts and, and those things. So what I wanted to do was kind of get your spin on what IFS is and what it means to you and how you use it.
1: Hmm. Okay. So there are three. I see three unique aspects to IFS therapy. And and first of all, it's an evidence based practice. That's what made me pay attention to it first, because there are well over twenty, maybe two, you know, scores of uh, therapy approaches that have books written about them, and you can take courses on them and all that. And I did a whole bunch of them. I did over a dozen. And then I found IFS therapy. Uh, it, it, there's an excellent introduction. The short, the best short introduction I've seen, is in the New York Times best-selling book, like mega best-selling book by Bessel van der Vanderkolk, called "Body: The Body Keeps the Score." Mm-hmm. There's a chapter on IFS therapy, and that's actually where I first learned about IFS therapy through that book. So I'd recommend that chapter to anyone who wants an introduction. And there are three elements that really stand out to me. One is the concept of parts. So there are other types of therapy that also incorporate parts work like gestalt. So I, it was not foreign to me, but IFS had the most thorough treatment of it, categorizing them into different um, types like uh, reactive or uh, proactive, um, you know, the firefighter type parts or the exiles, the protectors or uh, the managers. Uh, So this was helpful to just make sense of what was happening. And we already in, intuitively or instinctively think of ourselves as parts. Like a part of me wants to have ice cream, a part of me wants right. a six pack. So, so this we're already <laughs> thinking about it in those terms. Uh, and then this is just a more sophisticated and careful way of, of approaching it. And then there is the concept of the true self. And this is the deepest and perhaps the most controversial, if there's anything in it that's controversial. People think that the parts thing is going to be hard to under, to, to grasp or accept. It's really uh, relatively easy compared to this uh, concept of the higher self, this true self. And what IFS is telling you is everyone has within them basically the same true self that is marked by these eight C qualities. And then if you're also helping others, it's like the five P's. The eight C's are, um, so the idea is that there's this true self in you and in everyone who is fully compassionate, curious, courageous, has clarity, creativity is connected, is confident and calm. Okay. So that's the message there. There is this thing in you, this force in you, and it is, this is the linchpin upon which the whole model works. Um, otherwise you just have part sort of in. Alliance or polarization, and they're all sort of jumbled up, you know. And at the extreme, you could think of it even as a kind of dissociative disorder if you can't make any sense of it and you can't get any control over it. They're just fighting each other without the true self. The thing just sort of doesn't get off the ground, right? So, at the beginning, I would recommend uh, sort of the first major project for you, other than getting to know your parts, which is relatively uh, fun and straightforward, is to practice accessing uh, your true self, your higher self. Because that's really, that step is always required to get further in the process. And then the third factor or the third facet of uh, IFS that really stuck out to me is the experiential aspect. So I did a lot of training in other therapy modalities that are very popular. And a lot of them are talk therapy, which appealed to my philosophy parts and my intellectual parts. but. Didn't really make that much of a difference because, in fact, if you're smart, the theory is easy. Like the analysis, in my opinion, is the easiest part and the and, and the most fun part because there's very little at stake. You just analyze somebody else. You can even analyze yourself, but nothing really changes. Sometimes just seeing it changes things, and just seeing it can almost always help because then that help. What what it does is the thinking parts will relax back because they know. They kind of know what's happening. It's sort of like if you're going to go into surgery and you know what the surgeon's going to do for you and you've agreed to it, you've consented to it, you've signed the forms and you got all you know, gussied up for it and now you're in the that paper or gown or whatever and you agree, okay, you can still be afraid, but you're like, uh, this is good, for, this is for my own good, okay, I'm just going to you know, put me to sleep and just cut me open and do what you need to do. But if you didn't know what the heck was going on, they had to strap you in there and they're like, putting this thing over your face to make, you know, then you're going to really panic. So um, understanding it cognitively is, is helpful. um, But it's really just the first step. Then the actual real work is experiential. And that's, I find a place where IFS really shines. There are other modalities that I was doing where it's more of what IFS would call kind of direct access. You're speaking directly to the parts. One of the most powerful things about IFS therapy was, that you're trying to help the client access his or her own true self and empower them to do it themselves and in a sense then then the client is not dependent on you to do the work and you're kind of putting yourself out of work which is a good thing (laughs) and and it's and so (laughs) that experiential aspect of it was was incredible just one other thing i don't know how many therapists listen to your podcast as well that I attended so many therapy trainings where it was simulations. And in fact, when they asked for volunteers to dem- do this, some demonstration of something they just learned in the seminar, the person, the volunteer who's volunteering as the client role will come up with some like real issue. Of course, everyone's a therapist, right? So but the therapist person is now saying, you know, I've got this thing with my mother or whatever. Right? And then I've seen instructors say, no, no, no. Is that a real issue? Is that a live issue? Okay, let's pick something that maybe your client would have. Like basically they don't want to get, do it for real right there. Mm. and i thought oh okay, that makes sense so then we then we all pair off and we we drill it's like it's like brazilian jiu jitsu but with less at stake like you're just pretending and it's still like i still have uh, partners who don't know what they're doing i'm like just point at the next question on the paper you know just say that <laughs> you know this is so easy and i did all these therapy things and i didn't change my coaching style as a result because i thought now i've got this training but it doesn't really doesn't really have this impact that i was hoping then I went to the IFS therapy level one many years ago, and it was first of all it's immersive the, uh, for the first ten days. I think for the there are two phases to it. The one I did residential ones, and you're in there from nine to six every day, seven to ten days in a row. I can't remember exactly <clears throat> how long it was, and they're dealing with real live issues. They want you to to just really be there, and they want to work with your parts and. Often the instructor will have something that he wants to demonstrate, but I've seen about half the time they just throw that out the window because now this person is really in there. She's crying. She's reliving this thing. And he's like, okay, I'm going to help you the sex out part. And it's just this beautiful thing. And by the end, of, I've never been in an environment surrounded with so much love. And it's like 50 people who are in, uh, by the end of that first week, like as much of yourself as you can be. And it was such a remarkable, transcendent experience. Um, and I just wanted to bring some of that, a bit of that magic back to my clients, the people I work with. And um, it was incredible. So in a sense, that's why I'm such an advocate of IFS therapy. I, I can see how powerful it is. Uh, and then when you magnify it with, with all these other therapists, it's like a magic power. Anyway, so, one to <laughs> to mention that. That sounds awesome. Man.
0: I mean, I've I've heard from other clinicians that when they get trained in IFS, they actually do have to participate in the groups, like you said, and, and do the the live training. And um I think that being being a clinician who goes through the training, having that, you know, in your your, your back pocket allows you to to do such a better job when you're working with your clients because you've experienced it yourself. It's not just something that, you know, well, I read this book or I watched this video, but you've actually gone through it. So you, you know what to do and, you know, how the parts will react mm. and- you know, Yeah,
1: IFS and so therapy on paper is not a complicated model, in my opinion. It's much less complicated than say schema therapy that requires you to remember, to memorize 17 different schemas and then identify them in a dialogue. Um, IFS is relatively straightforward. The hard part of it is it's just like in, in any kind of art, is the implementation of it. It's the emotional leadership of it. And at the time that I took it, it was pretty, it was still kind of an obscure therapy model. It suddenly in the past few years exploded and now all of the trainings mm-hmm. are far oversubscribed. There's like some kind of lottery system. But back then it was still a little obscure. So the only people who would have been seen, and it was kind of expensive too, it was like five times more the price than than the other therapy trainings that I'd taken. But part of it was reflected in the amount of time that they were putting into it. Um, but whoever was there was re- like really wanting to be there, just like it would be now, I'm sure even more because of that lottery system. And then you'd have to apply. There's a whole application process. So you don't just pay and you're in. You'd have to write a whole thing. And um, so I was still the, one of the most underqualified therapists because my background is a professor and a life coach. And I think the average age at my training was my first training was in the fifties and they'd been, you know, average years of experience was like 25 or more. So these were very experienced therapists getting their first real formal training in this modality, which is astounding. And just Mm -hmm. like seeing that, this professional development commitment, you know, to learn a whole new thing at this age and this stage in your career. And um, they had a lot of life experience to call on, Um, but also they were very open. So one of the coolest experiences was we get into groups of four to practice what we've just learned. And I, uh, there are only so many breakoff rooms in the conference venue, And then there are at least, I think, well, there's about five or six groups of four in the main room. You're all in one big room, but you're, I don't know how far apart, uh, 10 feet apart. And once you start, you get like, it's like a 90 or two-hour uh, practice session you just start, you start to hear people crying like at the, relatively the same time. And wow. you know that it's crying. People are, so crying isn't necessary for processing to happen, but it often is a mark that it's happening. And crying when you're held and not alone in your sadness is a beautiful thing. And this is one of the things I keep trying to tell these men. Like, hey, if you're so tough, you're so courageous, cry. I dare you mm, 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 you know if you're if you're such, you're so afraid of being vulnerable, what you know, and so I, I challenge them this way, trigger them on purpose yeah, because they think they're so tough because they can't cry no you're you're scared, you're scaredy cat anyway, so get them in this this room, and so people are crying some I started crying, and i I was like boogers coming out of my nose and blowing my nose really loudly, and then I'm, I feel kind of embarrassed and blowing my nose so loudly, and then I hear someone else doing the same thing, I hear it's crying. And everyone's just open and uh, vulnerable, and, and it was it was like not only is my group of three other therapists holding me, holding the space for me to do this, and and if I open my eyes, I see like one of them crying with me, and it's, I feel uh, connected, but I also feel connected to all of these other practice groups at the same time. Everyone's just open, but not crying uncontrollably or overwhelmed or you know alone. Anyway, it was it was incredible. <laughs> I thought I would just share it's,
0: that. It, it sounds <laughs> it sounds like it was, um, and and we we don't get to hear these type of experiences. You know, I'm telling you, we we look at you guys and we just think, you know, I gotta find a therapist who can help me because therapists don't have problems. They're not human. They don't have emotions. They don't cry. And mm-hmm. so so to hear of, you know, kind of a a bit of a backstory and your training, what you guys go through, and what you learn, and you know the emotions that you experience and process. It's it's helpful. It really gives you um it makes you more human and i think that if people could see that going to therapy is sitting with another compassionate human instead of someone drilling you trying to get you to you know spill all your problems it would be easier so mm-hmm. i appreciate all the all the stories you're telling and i, I think others will as well hmm. well great well speaking to that point
1: about therapists being kind of this blank slate that that whole practice started with freud and then it carried on um, so it, it is important to not have dual relationships or, uh, things that might muddy the waters or to, or if the therapist shoves his or her issues onto the client and expects any kind of, uh, connection that way, or like a reciprocation that way, That those are all dangerous. Um, uh, but here's something to think about, uh, ther- professional therapists got into that field for a reason. What was that reason? Was it money? It might be, I don't, probably not. If Most prof, uh, professional therapists coming out of a university are, aren't making that much per hour. And it's it's not a get-rich-quick thing because it's hard to scale because you're trading time for money. Uh, so it's probably not money-driven. So almost always it's a result of their own experience. If they went to see a therapist, it helped them a lot. And as a result, they wanted to help others. But they got excited by this work. So you can assume that every therapist is messed up in some way, or was messed up in some way, and probably mm-hmm. is in certain ways. And that's why they're in it. And that's the beautiful thing about it. Because in a, in a sense, you're not pretending. This is a space where everyone and everyone's parts are welcome. So, uh, yeah, it's it's important to to recognize that no one is
0: this god. <laughs> Man, I wish that that could be the, the the statement for therapy and therapists is that you know we, we were messed up too and now we're here because we want to help you. <laughs> right. I, I, well, there's this. There would be a <laughs> line wrapped around the building. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's this uh, powerful trope. Well, I shouldn't call it a trope. A powerful uh, character that appears in, in uh, stories that go back thousands of years. The wounded healer yeah. goes through this kind of hero's journey, comes out of it scarred, and, uh, but as a
0: result. He's able to help others. Gotcha. I mean that it, it makes so much sense because you can't help somebody do something that they need help with if you haven't done it or you haven't right. been through it. So, well, there's. I mean, you other... can't. You can try, but you, you wouldn't do a good job. Right. The only other way to go.
1: Well, the other major. Uh, I keep thinking trope. But the other major image that keeps coming up with well, another other major character is the divine child. Right, so you have like a like a Jesus figure who just born is the Christ, doesn't really go through you know too much wounding, right? And just this precocious child, and you get that in some of the the tales about the Buddha. So unless you're claiming you're God, you don't get to go that way. You know, right. where did you get all this wisdom from? And there's another thing. Uh, in, as an, a professor of philosophy, you notice that in academia or in academics, you can find prodigies in maths the maths and sciences you know these are like preternatural calculators it's almost impossible I can't think of one to find a prodigy in wisdom you know like a 10 year old child writing the deepest philosophy you know a great wisdom because that is earned through
0: experience Mm. it's not just calculations So true so true um, something else that you do is, um, therapeutic coaching. And I know you touched on that a little, a little bit, but I wanted you to, to kind of give us a, a broader definition of, of what it is and how you do it. hmm So before I discovered psychotherapy, I
1: was a coach first. I was, well, it's actually, you could consider educators to be coaches. They're coaching you in some kind of knowledge field, uh, especially graduate student instructors. They're more of the cheerleaders and then the professors giving the lectures. And then I went into the pickup world, pickup artist, and I was a pickup artist coach. And it's sort of taking the same methodology, but with a new content. And then I was more into dating coaching, also helping women, you know, put their best foot forward on a date and that sort of thing. And then, and then in a relationship, which at the relationship coaching is kind of a joke if you don't have psychotherapy in there, but Um, A lot of couples counseling is mostly relationship coaching. So there is a definite limit to coaching. If you want more than just to make more money or to get a better performance in your sport. And so coaching is really good if there's a specific goal. So if you are trying to uh, win the championship at the next tournament, you should get a coach because they'll help make a game plan for you. And you'll know, put you on a twelve week plan, and and then just make sure you stick with it, and so on, and then adjust as you go. And they'll motivate you. In therapy, the goal is life. Like that's it's just your life. And one of the beautiful things about IFS is it's agendaless. Like when you start the therapy, you have to have some kind of client contract, in a sense. It could be unwritten and implicit, but the idea is you figure out why the client is coming to you and you can let, you know, agree whether you can do that for the client. Most men don't go to therapists because it's, there's no goal and there's no agenda. Right. Cause, it, and it can't have one unless you're just sort of lying. I mean, you can have a client contract. Like I just said, like I feel depressed. I want to be less depressed. Okay. We can help you with that. Right. right, right. Uh, but if you're like, most men won't, won't even admit that they're depressed, like, or that they, they, that they would go to someone who would help them. And the thing about the current therapy world and mental health world is 75 to 80% of therapists are female, which is also good because, uh, there are double, at least double as many female clients as male clients. But what that means is there are a lot of men who feel like they don't fit into to any of the current offerings in mental health. And, um, so now I've gone on a tangent. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the original, <laughs> now I'm thinking about all these other Right. So <laughs> what I found, thank you for that, helpful with especially uh, men who don't fit into the, so therapy is a hard sell. It's getting easier and easier over time, especially with this podcast I have where I keep pushing therapy in every episode. <laughs> but it's still not a natural thing that guys are going online Googling for. They are looking for results though. And I found that a lot of men who don't have the results yet have a hard time in life. They're not highly high functioning. So um, they don't have enough money to pay the therapist. That's a big problem. Uh, They can't hold down a job or um, they can't uh, think clearly. They're uh, sort of just stuck on endlessly scrolling their phones. Like they have hardly, they have a very short attention span. All of these things can be rectified with training and enough drive so i have found that rather than starting them straight in with therapy cuz you could you could do a therapeutic approach to motivational issues you could find out the parts that keep distracting them and that sort of thing but it, in order to 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 do that they have to have enough concentration or attention span to be able to just close their eyes and not just start thinking about you know the video game that they're going to play next or just having their thoughts taken you know taken over by parts going here and there all the time so i found that Coaching is really helpful for these guys. And what coaching is, is it's directive. Well, it's directed. I may not make it directive. It's, a very, it's relatively cognitive. Often there are things to do as a result. You know, there's like assignments to do in between sessions. Read this book or listen to this episode or meditation. And even meditation itself, telling them to meditate, then coaching them along it. Um, helping them find the right approach for them at that point in their lives. To me, this is all a kind of coaching. So therapeutic coaching for me is to take the best of what I know from coaching, including NLP, any hypnotherapy type of approaches, um, but also any kind of cognitive or talk approaches and, and any kind of motivational work. Tony Robbins is a great example of a successful life coach. And applying that to get them enough momentum so that they can sit long enough and be vulnerable long enough to do the therapeutic work so and um, it's not just like the coaching and then therapy i mix them up depending on what i'll I'll use whatever tools are available depending on what the client brings uh, for that session so that's how i combine therapy and coaching i think there's a place for both of them and they inform each other so even within the closed-eyed what ifs calls uh, insight where the client is with his own parts and Uh, I I might still help the client coach his own parts. And at at some point when you've unburdened, and this is more of my own spin on things. Once you've unburdened these protector parts and they've taken a break because they're often exhausted by the time you meet them, right? (laughs) then they're tired. They just want to take a break. At some point, they're going to come back. You're going to start to notice that they're up again and they want to do stuff because you can't just sit on a beach all day. You know, you get bored. These parts want to get back in it, get get back in life. But now they're not in their old roles, but they still enjoy many of the old things because that's what they knew. There's some part of it that they enjoyed. And now coaching really comes in, comes at the beginning and the end. Because now, for instance, if you have a, a part of you that's like a warrior part, but it was maybe going overboard and it was toxic, and then it goes to rest, then it comes back. And now it wants to get back in your body. It wants to feel again, right? Now it has to learn how to get along with your lover parts, for instance. Right or the part of you that plays with the little kids now it might get right in there and, and wrestle with your sons or something you know and, and it ha- just has to be coached back into it and um, that's a really beautiful thing so a lot of men who come to me or originally found me through their, because of their dating problems and then you take them through this therapeutic approach and now they're unburdened and now they find that have they have relatively little interest in their the old approach to dating like they have no patience for it. Because they're not trying to get every girl to like them anymore. They don't really care what their profile photo looks like on the app so much because they love themselves. And they're like, I want to find a woman who would, you know, would, would see past all that superficial stuff. And that's great. And yet the guy still needs a fashion makeover. You know, like, Hey, you know, you're not really looking as good as you could, you know, <laughs> or maybe he should stop eating all those Krispy Kreme donuts. You know, maybe you're treating your inner child a little too well, <laughs> right? And you're getting some, de- some debilitating medical issues down the road. So uh, now coaching comes in because there are other parts sort of sounding the alarm on these things and, and those are healthy uh, uh, intentions and motivations. And so then now we're back into a kind of coaching mode of coaching him through his lifestyle changes and and that sort of thing. So it's a, a 360 degree kind of approach to helping a client therapeutic nice. coaching.
0: That was awesome. I love the way you, you know, broke down how the parts once they, you know, can go to rest because they they, they are exhausted because they've been working so hard, they come back, they have another job, they, they want to get in there and do something that, that makes so much sense because they don't just go away, they're still there, they just have a different job now or a different function. So right. that was a great explanation, so thank you. Oh, thanks.
1: Well, on the dating issue, just one last example, I have quite a few clients who were interested in flirting better and that's, what, that's how they found me originally, but they had, almost, they had all this anxiety and nervousness that blocked that from happening. Then you go and meet all of these parts that are holding all of these uh, needs that aren't being met and you unburden those. And then, and then it's great. And they could just stop there and they'd already be uh, far more charming or charismatic or, you know, funny than they were before. But then there's sometimes they sometimes want to go a step further because now they have these parts that really enjoy flirting and uh, building sexual attention. And now they want to learn how to do that. So that's within their control. You know, how to use your eye contact in a way that draws people in. And so that's something that now that type of coaching can make a big difference in their lives. And it's fun. And they pick it up really fast because they have parts that are already interested in it, enjoy it, and have some kind of talent for it. So I'm going through uh, now some of that with my own parts uh, when it comes to writing. I I found a few different writing coaches. I found I've been working with one for over a year. and. I've discovered I have a part that really likes to write, but was very protected by other parts. So, working with them eventually allowed them to open up access to this creative writing part. But he's very sensitive. He's very easily scared off by the business parts so or the intellectual, the philosopher comes in and he just scurries off into the, in this, in this tower. So, mm-hmm. there's a whole kind of, for me, a kind of ritualistic approach to saying, hey, it's okay. You can come out and do your thing. And he loves to write stories and fables and things like that. And he's still getting the confidence to, to just go for it. And, uh, and the other parts that were kind of nervous about this are really on board. So it's coming together. The, the good thing is it's all really fun.
0: <laughs> right?
1: So no matter if I get good at it or not, uh, it's fun. And I'm helping this part, this creative writing part, which is sort of more just a creative part, um, Come to his, you know, come into his fullness more. I think any
0: art men with with that too. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say I think any artistic parts would be um a little timid because there's vulnerability that is um associated with that and even though you may learn how to be vulnerable, those parts may not have, you know, caught on or, or be on board just as much. So, I mm-hmm. think that the writing cuz I feel the same way, not that not that I'm a, you know, a gifted writer or what have you, but when I do write and I get vulnerable, I'm always nervous about posting like what is somebody gonna think? Yeah, you know, is this good enough? Blah, 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 blah. So I understand yeah. what you what you meant by one that. One of
1: the things that my system has contracted with that creative part is we will show no one the vom the first draft, the vomit draft. Once we made this agreement and we will not violate it, we'd rather burn the paper. Uh <laughs> then it was just flowing, you know, and you can try to experiment with different things. Um you know one of the ways that speaking of artists that i've worked with um, that get away with it is the technicality of the art so if you think about jazz there's a high challenge of technical technical sophistication and you can have a kind of jock jazz where when you play your solo it's aggressive it's like in your face and he's just showing how fast he can play and how loud and how high and there's that level of expression that isn't vulnerable and then there's the Type of expression where you're just feeling out this piece for the first time, or you're you're writing some music and just trying some things, and that can easily be squashed. You know, uh, so those are usually young parts that are are very good at that, but they need that encouragement. And this is part of where we now help to coach these parts you know, in a healthy system. So it's the IFS approach is like endless; it can continue all the way to
0: the end of your life, really. I agree. Something else I wanted to get into um, with you is because you coach and because you have um, you know, this background, a lot of the coaching stems from people needing help with their traumas. Um, so I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, uh, what is trauma and what are some of its side effects that you see with your clients? Yeah. Well,
1: trauma is a huge concept that has a lot of different meanings depending on who's using it and where you're using it. Uh, There's a concept that I like to tell clients about, which is micro traumas. There's one thing that men have trouble admitting is that anything bad happened to them, right? Cause that's like, they don't like many, most of the men I work with don't like admitting that they're or thinking of themselves as a victim. And they were also, of course, because of toxic masculinity, and just sort of toxic parenting uh we're told to to not cry to not show weakness to not whine or dromone or whatever so if i can get them on board with micro trauma and i start with you know just building muscle this is just this is good for you you're like break breaking down muscle and then you rest and recover and get some protein in there and it gets bigger so we need to have uh, life is made up of micro traumas that's how we grow stronger kind of an anti-fragile concept Um, So then I give examples of everyday examples of when we could have something happen to us where the meaning that we take away from it is that we're not enough and we have to adapt to be enough. We have to change how we are in order to get or keep the approval, attention or connection of our caregivers. And this is often our parents, you know, when we were growing up. When we were in this vulnerable state, like physically, as a, as a baby, you're in a completely vulnerable state. But even as a child, as you're growing up, you're still dependent very much on your parents, not just for food and shelter, but for all kinds of things. Right? And it makes a lot of sense. So I give them this like, it's totally OK to have this. This is, doesn't mean that you're comparing yourself to a rape victim or uh, a war veteran. OK, so those are very well understood kinds of trauma. Then when, when someone goes through some kind of horror, horrific uh, assault or accident, you know. Oh, man, that's traumatic. Yeah, that makes sense. Or if you go through war you see your best friend's brains blown out next to you, yeah, that's traumatic. Everyone's got you know on board with that one nowadays. Uh, <laughs> imagine the in the eighties, it wasn't, but you know nowadays, yeah. Um, so, what makes something traumatic isn't the event itself, right? Because something could be traumatic for one person and not for another. It's the meaning that we associate with it, how we interpret it. What does it mean about us or about the world? And trauma then, if you have a meaning where it brings fear, overwhelming fear, that you're, let's say, one that's very common is that you're not enough. uh, Or that just the world is unsafe and you can't trust your own instincts. uh, This keeps you trapped. There's a part of you that gets trapped at that point in time. And your physical body goes on. But if the triggering is co- is close enough that it associates with that event, then the brain activates that set of neural pathways that got locked in that time. And so this is, what ha- this is uh, why the unburdening process in IFS is so important because it's this very delicate process of getting to that and then helping them uh, let go. Uh, by giving them first a new meaning that comes from the higher self because of a a different perspective, a perspective with more clarity, Um, but also that that part is not alone with that pain or that fear or with what happened there, and that it doesn't need to stay stuck there. And then it can begin to let go of those old beliefs and then the old emotional associations and then some of the old physical associations. Uh, so then with the micro trauma, I give an example, uh, uh, Alice Miller in her book, um, drama of the gift of child gives some good examples that I, that I like to give one with ice cream. So I just, so there's a quick example, a kids walking through the park, I don't know, a six year old, uh, on a sunny day, let's make it even younger, three year old on a sunny day, walking through the park, sees ice cream cone, right? Mom and dad get an ice cream cone each, but they are big ones. And this child cannot handle that much sugar. Right. And they don't have any small, like junior sized ones. So the child keeps saying, Yeah, I want my own. I want one. I want. One. And they're like, OK, you can have a lick of mine. But the child wants his own. He wants his autonomy. He wants to be equal. He wants to be seen as a person, not just a derivative. Yeah. And the whole time, your parents are like, No, you can just have a, a taste of ours. And he didn't even want their flavors. They got adult flavors. You know, he just wants his own flavor. And then he starts throwing a little bit of a tantrum. And they, they just kind of laugh at him because it's cute. You know, He really wants his own ice cream. He can't have it. Aww. And now he feels like he's being ridiculed. You know, they don't respect me as a person. You know, Then he decides he's going to try a withdrawal strategy. So he walks the other direction, sees if they come over and give in. They don't, they just, they don't even go to his direction. They just stop and say, come here, come this way. And he sees it doesn't work. So then he goes with them and then, so he's tried the rebel strategy, throwing a tantrum, maybe ups the tantrum. Then he's tried the loner strategy. That didn't work. So now he tries the pleasing strategy. He's trying to figure out how to, you know, make them uh, to do what they want so that they'll go and buy him his own ice cream. And maybe at that point they say, okay, next time we'll get you, we'll get you, your, you know, some white lie or I don't know, some well-meaning lie. And that placates him. But now he has become the pleaser because that one worked best. And then do that a hundred times, and what these are are little micro traumas that shift how you become, or the parts that come online, and they become your dominant personalities. So we are all affected by these little micro traumas, and there might—I shouldn't have said a hundred. It doesn't take that many. It may be half a dozen, um, and then they add up. Uh, and there are plenty of micro traumas from bullying that I see a lot. Uh, just from parents who are insensitive at that point it's very everyone's got them so i I've, uh, i work with a lot of high functioning uh clients who are very successful in their professional fields who balk at the suggestion that they have any trauma in their lives no my parents were great i had i had a silver spoon growing up i went to all the best private schools i did not all this went to harvard whatever no, no, no my problems aren't there. I need a strategy. I need yeah, David, give me a strategy. I could implement it. I'll make all this money, and I'll be happy. Just tell me what to do. and uh so I have to smuggle these what's really going on in there, and then we discover uh, he was locked in you know the bathroom for you know, twelve hours because you know he wasn't behaving well, and you know these little things come up later when his eyes are closed, and he's able to be with these parts and they show him things that he's forgotten. Uh, Because, well, those parts have tried to forget those things. And so, I I, I talk a lot more about micro traumas than capital T trauma.
0: But all of it keeps you locked in the past. Wow. Those are some great examples, especially the one about the ice cream, because I think most of us as a child have had experiences like that. And we just think, you know, that was just part of growing up. And we don't really see the impact that it had on us and how it molded and shaped our personalities and what parts develop out of that that keep us, you know, acting a certain way or, or, having certain behaviors. Um, so another question, what, what would be a way that we could grow and heal from some of these emotional wounds? Well, the best way is what I call the therapeutic
1: process. So in my podcast, I've got a, dedicated an episode to the seven step therapeutic process. Uh, and it's the core of it is from IFS therapy, so the best way is IFS therapy, <laughs> and uh, the other, you know, actually the best way is you know my approach to therapy to coaching. It's hard to to talk about it because it really depends on what you're bringing. Uh, so the, the abstract approach is all the same. You're going to identify the protector parts that are in distress. You know, you're going to uh, build a trusting relationship with them. You're going to access enough of your higher self with those eight C's that I mentioned earlier in order to be with them. And then as you build that trusting relationship, they will reveal to you the exiled parts they're protecting. Then you go to these exiled parts and you help them to let go of their burdens. As a result of them letting go of their burdens, they don't need protecting anymore. Then you bring these protector parts back in and say, hey, look. Check out these exiled parts. They're just jumping in for joy and they're just having a good time. They don't need you to protect them anymore. I'm here now. Then protector parts go, what do I do now? And you go, whatever you want. <laughs> and then they go, well, I'm freaking tired, so I want to take a break. Great. And they often go to a beach or something like that. And at some point, two, three months or years later, you start to notice they're hopping back in there. And and then you can ask them, well, what would you like to do? You know, then they'll tell you, I'd rather uh, play some music or... I'd like to be in charge of our workouts or something like that. And then you find them a good spot for them to be in. And then you integrate them. And then you repeat this whole process ad infinitum for every uh, pairing of protector-exile part that you identify. And then that last step of coaching them through their healthy roles, can, well, that will go on forever. So that's what you do. But uh, it's one thing to hear it theoretically and another to, to undergo it, experience it for yourself. And I recommend that I don't recommend anyone actually do it themselves uh, at first. Uh, I thought I knew what IFS therapy was from research from books and online courses. I had, I, te- I, I really didn't know. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know that I didn't know it was what it was until I attended the IFS level one training. And then I was like, what the heck are they doing? <laughs> you know, like why? <laughs> so, I, and then I experienced it like, Whoa, this is so much more powerful. It's sort of like reading about food and then tasting it. It's like totally different. Right? So I'd recommend everyone before you do any self-therapy, you get at least 10 sessions with a very good IFS therapist that work, that connects with you. Um, and s- some people will connect with others. It might even be, uh, you know, racial or cultural, whether that therapist gets you. in fact, uh, research has shown, and I, I, my experience is the same, that um, the therapist, him or herself, is more important of a factor than the approach that they use. So it's not even IFS therapy that's the most important. It's the therapist that you choose to to work with. So take your time with that. Uh, don't get discouraged of the first two that you talk to you don't really connect with or you feel judged or something. Uh, there There are enough personalities out there that it will you'll find one that will fit with you just um keep going keep going man.
0: that's good advice and I think that relatability is so important. I did an episode with um a therapist in New York who's African American and he said that you know some of his clients they come in and he just wants to provide a safe space and be someone they can relate to and if they want to talk about you know the fact that you know, Kobe died or we, or we lost, um, you know, uh, someone who was important to our culture, who was famous, we can just sit there and talk about that. And, and having that as an aspect of someone you connect with and therapy and having a therapist allows for you to, to have that relatability and you can open up to so, so much more broader, um, you know, avenues and, and conversations from there to, to reach the parts that need the help. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I do agree with you that, you know, the therapist is important because if you can't relate to somebody or if it's somebody that, you know, you may be triggered by because of cultural dynamics, I don't, I don't think that would allow you to actually get to your core issues or to the actual parts that need the help. So I agree. Absolutely.
1: 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So I wanted to quote one of your posts. um, it says healthy growth starts from self-acceptance, not self-criticism. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yes, this is a big theme. So, in life coaching, and that kind of therapeutic coaching, the coaching part of therapeutic coaching, a lot of the uh, a lot of what works in the short term requires you to kind of beat yourself up. Like one thing that really helps is imagining if you stay stuck in this way 10 years from now, uh, you know, you know, how badly would you feel? And you just sort of beat yourself that way. And that, that is helpful to get you started because it's, it's easy to go through life without understanding the long-term consequences of it. And then you wake up and 10 years have passed and your life is far worse off. So it's doing you a service to help, help you like in a kind of Dickens or Scrooge exercise to look into the future. But if that's the only approach that you use, then when you want to step it up a notch or level up, you're just going to keep using the whip and the, the whip obviously leaves all kinds of debilitating scars and long-term consequences that will make things worse so I've discovered that and this is sort of a paradox for achievers that if you begin with self-acceptance that however you are right now you can acknowledge that you want more you want more money or you want a wife from the kind of guys I'm working with or you want a thriving social life you want these things but if you can see yourself as you are now and accept not only that this is reality for you, because that's already a big step. You're not in denial anymore, but now this is this is how things are. And even further, that you can appreciate it. You can appreciate you now in whatever you're, you previously considered to be a kind of a loser state. Or not good enough state. And that it's okay. That it's okay that he's like this. You want to give him a big hug. Let him know it's okay. Let him know you love him just the way he is. And you're not going to love him more just because he made more money or you know, uh, uh, won the trophy or whatever or got a better body. You're happy for him if he does that and if that's what he wants. But you don't need him to change in order for you to love him, that you love him just the way he is. And that's where acceptance will naturally grow into love if you can just stay with it long enough from there you'll discover what you really want to do because so much of our motivations our desires are mimetic we just imitate others uh imitate what we were taught or what we saw or were taught uh, in our childhood from our parents or whatever was passed down by our teachers or peers when growing up and then we imitate everyone we see on social media these other mimetic models and so on we don't really know what we want what would make our heart sing so to speak we will make our parts excited. And until you can remove the motivation of self-criticism or the whip to get you moving forward, you won't actually have the room to discover what you really want. So removing the criticism and replacing it with acceptance sets the foundation, lays the, the groundwork. Um, or at least, you know, uh, what's it called? Uh, you know, you, you're making the uh, the ground fertile enough for for now for you to discover, I guess, like seeds sprouting. What you really want, maybe what you really want, wasn't to pursue that job at that investment bank or that tech startup or whatever, because you thought that that's what would make you look cool or that's what would lead to money, and then you would be uh, uh, applauded by wh- whoever you're you looking up to. But what you really wanted to do was. I don't know. You know, play video games and work in that area, or you know, uh, make music, or or some combination of those. And you won't have that space to really discover what you want until you stop uh, being driven by self criticism and start from a place of self acceptance.
0: Wow, man, that was so deep and so powerful and um, profound, and and it makes so much sense too. Because a lot of times we do things. That we really don't want to do because we think we should do it based on how we look or you know what other people think of us so that was mm. that was great, that yeah. was great. Or what our friends are
1: doing or what our friends want mm. you know, or what people that were who what people that were following on social media want right. we just sort of brainwashed into oh I, I guess i should want this and
0: then you just forget exactly where it came from and you just want it right and then you do it and you realize doesn't make you happy because it, yeah. it really had nothing to do with you in the first you place. You worked so hard for nothing, you know, well, you know, <laughs> no fulfillment. <laughs> right, exactly. All right. Well, I wanted to um ask you one last question and this is I think a big one. And and with your knowledge base and with your education, it's clear that you know what you're talking about, right? So if you could encourage someone using your platform who's struggling with um being uncomfortable talking to someone else about their feelings or their emotions, or just getting curious with their parts, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I saw that you sent me that question over the email. I wanted to just clarify um, in this imaginary scenario, uh, why are they struggling first? Like if you were to ask them, well, why don't you do it?
0: What might they say? would we'll say maybe it's just not something that, culturally they do or it's difficult for them to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So, if it's
1: cultural or if it's just difficult, um uh, you can just keep doing what you're doing. There's no problem with that. So, like I'm saying, I always tell people if you have if there's any resistance to what I'm suggesting, you don't need to do it. You can I'm giving you the freedom to just keep doing what you're doing. If it's working for you, there's no need to change. Question then obviously is: Is it working for you? Right. 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 So there's no agenda here. It's not, I got no skin in the game of you changing in that sense. If you don't want to, uh, hey, if it's working for you, keep at it. And this is actually something I learned from IFS. I kind of already knew this from debating uh, in philosophy. You can't convince anybody of anything if they if they resist. But also the answer, the right answer is don't push <laughs> so if a protect you, you never want a protector part to stop doing its job until in that one time that they step back enough to show you their exile you can go all the way if you can't take that exile as you know far down into that unburdening process don't start because what will happen is what ifs therapy calls backlash like you take them halfway and they got all these emotions that they had been for 15, 20, 25 years of their life, 30, 50 years of their lives, holding back. And in that therapy session, you got them to feel that loneliness again, and the sadness, and you were there for them. So it was okay. The next day they wake up and they feel like crap. And they're like, what did I just do? I allowed all of that emotion to come out. Nah. And then they don't want to see you again. They cancel all their sessions or they get mad at you, which is if they show up, then it's great. You can work on it. And that's, that's fine. But the worst is when they just ghost you because their parts have now lost trust in you because mm-hmm. they, it, it, there was this unspoken agreement. You're not going to make me do anything that I can't handle. And now you open up the floodgates and they can't handle it. So before you go there, you always just work with this protector until you get this trust. And then, you know, as soon as that door opens, you kind of, you need to go all the way. And there are sometimes when the unburdening takes three hours and Uh, you know you get the hour so you try to schedule another session, you know somewhere in between an emergency session but if you can't you got to let the system know this is what's about to happen this week you're going to probably be breaking down in the middle of work you don't know why (laughs) there's all this other stuff's going to happen you might be driving and you you just start bawling pull over (laughs) if you can't see out your eyes pull over so so they're not surprised like expect this because we couldn't finish it now that that wound is raw. It's just flowing. All the stuff they've been blocking. Uh, it'd be ideal if you could finish it then. And this is modeled for me in, in the trainings where they had this, you know, today we're going to be learning about whatever, you know, some technique. And then you have a live person sitting in front of you going through some stuff and, okay, we're not going to force this demonstration of whatever this technique is. I'm going to be here for this person and, and her parts. Uh, and so when, if someone were to come to me and say, I don't want to do it, my answer is you don't have to. It's okay. No one's forcing you. You don't have to say any of that vulnerable stuff. Okay. But if you want something different in your life, this is what you need to do. Then if it's, especially if it's a tough guy, I'll challenge him on his courage. You know, I'll ask him, how tough does he how tough is he really? Uh, are you ready to face your fears? Are you going to step up in the face of fear? Can you get comfortable with the uncomfortable? This is where that coaching stuff comes in. You know, and then, all right, let's do it. Or if it's an intellectual part, I say, well, give me another, solu- give me another uh, solution. You know, what's your alternative? And one by one, I'll just dismantle each of them. <laughs> and then I'll say, well, <laughs> this is it. This is all you got. You're going to do it? And if he says no, it's like, hey, it's Okay. Let's try again next time or never try again. It's up to you. Right, right. And so that's what I would say. You don't need to. You don't have to. I'm not pressuring to. Uh, the world doesn't require you to either. But if you would like to feel different, if you would like something more, this is the best way to go about it. Feel through these emotions and be open enough to go there.
0: That was great. I love that, and I, I, I also love how you structure it because a person convinced against their will is still not convinced, right? So we cannot force someone to do anything. You know, it has to be something that somebody wants to do. And if they get to a point where they understand that the only way to have something different is to do something different, then, you know, Mm -hmm. therapy is here and and it's waiting for you whenever you are ready.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's great.
0: Great way to put it. All right, David. Well, this has been so great, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. Um, it's evident, like I said, that you you have done the work. You um, you know you you can tell you're smart. <laughs> As you're a professor. You, <laughs> well, you know, you've done all the things. So
1: likewise, thank you, Jelan. Thanks and thanks for doing this podcast and and all the work that you're doing. It's very encouraging to see, and I just
0: want to uh, encourage you to keep going, man. It's great stuff. Thank you. I appreciate that. If someone wanted to find you online or social media, where could they find you?
1: They can go to davidtianphd.com. T-N is T-I-A-N. And uh, you can, if you want to get in touch, there's a contact form and it'll go right to our support team and then to me. So that's, that's probably the best one single source to go to com.
0: Gotcha. All right, David. Well, again, thank you so much for this. It's been such a, a pleasure and an honor. To witness your skill set and your knowledge base. So I wanted to uh, again thank you for your time, for what you do, for who you are and how you do it. Thank you, Jillian. And likewise, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's been great.